0: Hey there, and welcome to Pwncast. Osler files everywhere, rejoice, because today we're taking you back to the bedside to talk about diagnosis. Osler what? Osler file. As in, people
1: who like William Osler. Ah, the greatest diagnostician to ever wield a stethoscope. The greatest diagnostician indeed. Now, a podcast on diagnosis may sound like boring student stuff, but don't skip this episode quite yet.
0: We're going to tackle evidence-based
1: diagnosis. So, diagnostic foreground questions. In other words, does a particular piece of subjective or objective data have value in diagnosing or ruling out a condition? And if so, how valuable is it? I think you'd be surprised to see
0: how, uh, let's say, not helpful certain physical exam techniques are in ruling out or ruling a condition. Check our show notes for JAMA's Rational Clinical Examination. Now, before we dive into the meat and potatoes of this episode, let's talk about the two main approaches to diagnosis, pattern recognition and probabilistic
1: diagnostic reasoning. These are pretty much analogous to System 1 processing, which is fast and instinctive, and System 2 processing, which is considered slow and analytic. Check out the show notes for more info on this. I think the differences between
0: these two strategies is probably best illustrated with a few cases.
1: Agree. Let's say you're called to assess a 67-year-old female patient with left-sided flank pain. On exam, you find a unilateral, in fact, dermatomal vesicular rash on her side. What's the most likely diagnosis? Sounds like shingles to me. Those are some nice pattern recognition diagnostic skills. I'm all about system one. Oh, yeah. Let me hit you with a harder one. have a 75-year-old male with a history of hypertension, diabetes, who presents with acute onset shortness of breath. He has a 20-pack year smoking history. He's lost 20 pounds in the past six months, but has also had reduced appetite since his wife passed away a year ago. Was that a question? Oh, oh, sorry. I got lost in the story. What's the most likely diagnosis? Okay. So
0: acute onset shortness of breath, my starting differential is going to be things like pulmonary embolism, pneumothorax, flash pulmonary edema, maybe arrhythmia or acute coronary syndrome or airway obstruction. But it sounds like this guy has a few other things complicating his picture, like weight loss, his smoking history. I start to wonder, does he have an underlying malignancy? Patient 2 took
1: you a little bit longer than patient number 1. Well, yeah. I mean, there wasn't much pattern to recognize here. Exactly. And this is the case in many of our patients with multiple and sometimes complex diseases. Simple pattern recognition fails. So what do we do? We move into a system
0: 2 or analytic frame of mind where we slow down, analyze the data from our HMP, generate a list of probable diagnoses, and estimate the probability of each. And from here, we can move forward with the workup to start to narrow down our differential.
1: Really, I thought we would just put them in the answer box. CT chest, CT abdomen, pelvis with POIV contrast. John, one finger in the throat, one finger in the John. What? What? Osler would be ashamed. The second one actually is an Osler quote about good
0: diagnosticians. Mm-hmm. Look it up. Back on topic. For the remainder of this episode, we're really going to be drilling down on the PDR or probabilistic diagnostic reasoning approach. We're going to be talking about how we validate our data gathering tools that we use every single day to arrive at our diagnoses. So, back to the PDR approach to diagnosis. Some key terminology that we're going to go through pretest probability, test threshold post-test probability, and treatment threshold. And y'all, really, this isn't anything new. You evaluate the patient and generate a differential.
1: Next, we estimate the probability, specifically the pretest probability of each condition.
0: Pre-test probability meaning before I even start diving in, asking more questions, performing special exam techniques, or ordering diagnostic tests to rule out or rule in a disease, what's the probability that my patient has that disease in the first place? Rarely are these pretest test probabilities actually calculated. We usually see clinicians estimating probabilities based on previous experience, a method that honestly can be wrought with bias.
1: Clinical decision rules like Wells' score for VTE can help, but these are also imperfect. Nevertheless, once our
0: pretest test probability for a disease reaches what's called a test threshold, we order diagnostic tests that move us to a post-test probability.
1: For example, in our gentleman with acute onset shortness of breath, if your pretest probability for pulmonary embolism isn't that high, you might not feel strongly about sending him for a CTA to rule out PE.
0: Right, why put him through radiation, IV contrast, if something like COPD exacerbation
1: is much higher on your differential than PE? But what if I told you he was tachycardic, hypoxemic, with a clear chest x-ray, and recently flew back to the U.S. on an international flight? Hmm... And his D-dimer was elevated. Mm, Sounds like we bought ourselves a scan. or I mean, at least lower extremity Doppler's. Exactly. In either case, you've reached what we call a test threshold. Your pretest probability is sufficiently high for you to have to rule it in or rule it out with further workup. So let's say my CTA comes back with right-sided acute pulmonary embolism. He's got no submassive or massive physiology. My next move would be to anticoagulate. Yep. So now we've
0: moved from a high pretest test probability for pulmonary embolism to an even higher post-test probability for pulmonary embolism. And now that we've made the decision to anticoagulate, we've reached our treatment threshold. So that means that our likelihood of him actually having
1: a PE is high enough
0: for us to actually initiate
1: treatment. Why do you keep talking about probabilities? This guy has a PE. It's there. We can see it. Because it's not
0: always this clear cut. You know, let's say that for one reason or another, we couldn't scan him. So we order a VQ scan and it shows up as indeterminate for PE, clinically correlate.
1: I'd have to think a little harder about initiating anticoagulation in that case.
0: Right, because now we aren't so sure if our post-test probability is high enough to meet our treatment threshold. So maybe we start looking to
1: other tests to push us one way or the other. How do we know if we can trust a test to establish the post-test probability of a disease? I never thought you'd ask.
0: I'm sure you figured this out by now, but sometimes we need to turn to the literature to assess the utility of a diagnostic test.
1: When it comes to a diagnostic test or a series of diagnostic tests, we're looking for two things.
0: We want tests that move us to either extremely high post-test probabilities, i.e. ruling a disease in, or we want tests that move us to extremely low post-test probabilities, or ruling a
1: disease out. When it comes to assessing studies of diagnostic tests, there's really no single study format. I think
0: more often than not, we'll find that these are observational studies, and I'd like to invite you to listen to our previous episode if you haven't already to learn more about that. But sometimes these are studied with RCTs or systematic reviews. No matter the format, when it comes to evaluating medical literature on a diagnostic test, the real money is in evaluating sources of bias.
1: First, we want to make sure our sample is representative. Right, the whole point of a diagnostic
0: test is to distinguish among disorders that might otherwise be confused with one another.
1: Like PE versus some other cause of respiratory failure.
0: Exactly, in other words, if a study compares florid cases of pulmonary embolism versus asymptomatic healthy volunteers, they'd be unhelpful because this isn't what we see in
1: clinical practice. Instead, we want a variety of cases including people who are asymptomatic, as well as individuals with mild to early manifestation of the disease. Comparing
0: two extremes of disease is known as spectrum bias. This brings to mind what happened with the carcinoembryonic antigen, or CEA, testing in patients with colorectal cancer.
1: A study found CEA was elevated in 35 out of 36 patients with known advanced colorectal cancer, and it was normal in healthy volunteers.
0: This might lead us to believe that CEA is useful in ruling in or ruling
1: out colorectal cancer. But that data didn't pan out. In patients with intermediate pretest probability for colorectal cancer, CEA was simply not useful as a diagnostic or screening tool. All right, so the next thing we want to ask ourselves is
0: whether or not there was an acceptable gold standard. We can only measure the accuracy of a diagnostic test if we compare it to the truth.
1: You can't handle the truth, son. We live in a world that has walls,
0: and those walls... John, focus. As we were saying, we need a
1: gold standard reference test. Ideally, the same reference test will be used on all patients in the study. Otherwise, we're subjected to what's called partial verification bias.
0: Imagine that you have a group of patients with suspected coronary artery disease, and you send them for a stress test.
1: Those with positive results are likely to go for coronary angiography, the current gold standard to confirm presence of CAD. But
0: those with negative results may never go for angiography. So how can we evaluate the utility of stress testing if a major portion of our sample isn't undergoing the gold
1: standard to rule in or rule out the disease? Lastly, it's important that those interpreting test results are blind to the other result, Otherwise, this may influence interpretation of a diagnostic study.
0: Right, the interpreter may be inclined to look a little harder for a PE if they know the lower extremity dopplers are positive for DVT. Hey, John. You know what time it is?
1: Is it sizzle time? You know it. Sizzle.
0: We're gonna cover three concepts and studies of diagnostic tests. First, type one and type two errors. Next, sensitivity and specificity. And lastly, likelihood ratios. After we're done sizzling, we'll wrap up by discussing what we do with that data. First up, type one and type two errors. John, you ready?
1: Here we go. A type one error is also known as false positive. In other words, the true test result is negative, but for whatever reason, it appears positive. Conversely, a type two error is also known as a false negative, where the true test result is positive, but for whatever reason, it appears negative. The rate of false positives is going to be the proportion of all negatives that still yield positive test outcomes. This is also known as a significance level, which we will use to calculate specificity. The rate of false negatives is going to be the proportion of all positives that still yield negative test outcomes. This is what we use to calculate sensitivity. Pretty good. So
0: let me just make sure I understand this right. A type 1 error is a false positive, while a type 2
1: error is a false negative. That's right? That's right. Cool. Your turn. We're going to dive right into sensitivity and specificity. Let's make it happen.
0: So sensitivity is simply the true positive rate. This is essentially the power of detection. So if the condition is indeed present, how likely is it that my test will detect it? A test that is 99% sensitive for condition X is going to have a very low rate of false positives. In other words, you can trust that your positives are really positives. If you want to rule in a condition, you want a test that is highly sensitive, but sensitivity does not have much value in ruling out. Specificity, on the other hand, is simply the true negative rate. So if the diagnostic tests say that a condition is not present how likely is it that the patient really doesn't have disease x a test that is 99 percent specific is going to have a very low rate of false negatives so if you want to rule out a disease you want a test that is highly specific
1: not bad you made it under all right we're going to wrap up with likelihood ratios let's go likelihood ratios are really used to evaluate two things the utility of a particular diagnostic test and how likely it is that a patient has a condition. Likelihood ratios are generated from sensitivity and specificity. We have both positive likelihood ratios and negative likelihood ratios. You are welcome to check out the show notes to see how positive and negative likelihood ratios are calculated. In simple terms, likelihood ratios indicate the extent to which a given diagnostic test will raise or lower the pretest probability of disease X. A likelihood ratio of 1 tells us the post-test probability is exactly the same as the pre-test probability. A likelihood ratio greater than 1 increases our post-test probability of disease X, while a likelihood ratio less than 1 decreases our post-test probability of disease X. In general, we look for a likelihood ratio of at least 10 or 0.1 to significantly increase or decrease our pre- to post-test probabilities. There are a lot of fancy calculators out there for converting pre to post as probabilities. Check out MedCalc, the Diagnosis app, Google the Fagan nomogram, or check out the show notes to learn more. Nicely done.
0: That was actually pretty good. Nice.
1: Let's wrap up our discussion with a brief summary and conclude how we can use our data. Remember, for those patients with diseases that aren't classic
0: and clear-cut, we engage our system too and start using probabilistic
1: diagnostic reasoning. It all begins with evaluating the patient, generating a differential diagnosis, and typically qualitatively calculating a pretest test probability. From
0: here, if our test threshold is reached for a given disease, we decide what diagnostic tests we order. In general, we want tests or a combination of tests that are both sensitive
1: for ruling in and specific for ruling out. And remember that we're really looking for diagnostics with likelihood ratios greater than 10, or less than 0.1. This data is readily available on sites like UpToDate or Hippocrates.
0: After the workup, we move to our post test probability. If we've surpassed
1: our treatment threshold, we treat. Some questions we want to ask ourselves when ordering diagnostic tests First, is this test going to change my management? Like ordering a D dimer on a patient who already has a negative CTA.
0: Right, we probably aren't going to initiate anticoagulation
1: even if the D dimer comes back positive. Second, was the population used to study a given diagnostic test generalizable to my current patient? Right, like we think about stroke volume
0: variation, for example, which is a a great tool, in my opinion, to assess volume responsiveness, but it's not going to be useful for my spontaneously ventilating patient who has a fib. (laughs)
1: Lastly, and most importantly, will the patient be better off as a result of the test?
0: It makes me think of the controversies surrounding the snake of truth, or PA catheter.
1: Great bedside physiologic data, but so far... No demonstrated reduction in mortality.
0: Well, that does it for our evidence-based discussion on diagnostics. Check out our show notes for more helpful material. And as always, keep breathing, keep streaming,
1: and keep reading.